Welcome to the Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast where we discuss all things compounding and all things concerning independent pharmacy. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Delisio, North American Sales Director, and Sebastian Dennison, Clinical Compounding Pharmacist. Welcome, Compounding World, and welcome to the latest episode of a Mortar and Pestle, a PCCA podcast. This is Mike Delisio, and as always, joined Sebastian Dennison. Seb, how are you? Great. It's a great day for a podcast. Great day to be alive. It's always a great day for a podcast. And it's always great to be joined uh, by a member of our clinical services team. And this is an individual who has appeared on a previous podcast discussing the benefits of HRT. And we are joined by none other than Renelle Larson. Hi, Renelle. Hi, Mike and Sebastian. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're so happy to have you back. I know this is going to be a completely different topic. Something that we probably have touched on on other episodes in some capacity, whether it was talking about the disease state of dermatology itself, whether it was talking about the innovation and and bases that we innovate and we deliver to our, our member pharmacies. But for the most part, we have a lot to unpack in the world of dermatology. Um, for those that are not familiar with Renell, she's been a member of our clinical services team for the last seven years. Uh, we've always tabbed her as our kind of our HRT guru um, and has been an incredible force in regards to women's health and, and helping a lot of our members in that capacity. Uh, but today we're going to switch gears because I know uh, Derm is obviously near and dear to her as well and obviously possesses a tremendous amount of knowledge and, and works side by side with Sebastian. So this is going to be really cool to talk about. We're going to cover a lot of marketing opportunities, ability to connect with dermatologists, talk about some of the new formulations and things that have evolved within our marketplace and truly give all you compounders out there a lot of a better understanding of what's happening within the world of dermatology. So probably the easiest thing to start off with for now, um, knowing that you know we've covered the topic in a variety of ways, what's been the biggest shift that you've noticed in the last couple of years in regards to the world of dermatological compounding? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, you mentioned my love for HRT and derm is a close second and those actually go hand in hand together. And in the last few years, I've seen a big increase in our hormone patients that are crossing over into derm. Um, and so it's a really good, um, kind of like a, they go hand in hand together. And that that's really increased in the last couple of years. I think one of the biggest areas that I see is once people get their hormones balanced, they want their skin to look good. So they want to look at anti-aging, decreasing their wrinkles, increasing their moisturization. Um, that and skin lightening um, are two of the top things that I see um, and kind of something unique that I have stumbled on in the last few years. Um, it's been around for a little bit, but it helps both with wrinkles, skin rejuvenation, as well as skin lightening is microneedling and microneedling is done in offices. It's also done in at the home, um, that patients can do themselves and compounders are at a super unique position to assist both the dermatologist and the patient if they choose to do it at home. So that's a really neat niche that we have some compounders getting in. I'd like to see a lot more in there um, because it is a really great opportunity, you know, using things like um, 
vitamin C and vitamin A, those are kind of the staples of microneedling, but you can add other things in there as well. Niacinamide is great for skin lightening and decreasing inflammation. Um, it's great for helping with dark spots. Microneedling itself will help with the dark spots, but, um, you can add these other active ingredients. And that's, what's so cool about compounding is being able to customize it to what the patient or what the practitioner is wanting. So this is a huge opportunity, in my opinion, for compounders to take their existing patient database, their existing hormone patients, and kind of transfer them over into their skincare. It's a very natural transition um, to help with these conditions. Another thing is you can use estriol topically on the skin to help with um, increasing moisture, decreasing the wrinkle content. So that's a great thing that's not commercially available. It's something that patients can only get from compounders. So if I had to pick one thing that I would say, um, I wish our compounders would do, but that I see an increase in is, is like the overall skin care and health of the skin and microneedling, I think should be at the top of that. In my opinion, I do that at home. I love it. I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of pharmacies that are starting to utilize it. And that's a great opportunity. Um, also when you have a practitioner, or a dermatologist that's doing this in their office, the compounder can assist not only with the formulation to apply to help, you know, with all these conditions, skin lightening and wrinkles, but they can also assist with the numbing creams because when they do this in the office, they're using much longer needles than they would use at home. So you do need to numb the face prior. So there's a lot of different things we can do for that as well. So I, I'm, I'm going to kind of jump in and be like, whoa, we started talking about microneedling really quick. And I think just giving a little bit of background for people, because obviously we're, we're kind of coming through a sound um, platform. They, they may not be able to wrap their head around this. So could we just okay. kind of jump back like two steps really quickly and just describe like what the microneedling looks like, what the process is, how it kind of um, imparts that benefit. And then we can kind of take two steps, maybe even three steps forward and start talking about some of those therapeutics. Okay. Do you want me to completely start over? Do you think? No, no, no. Just start from here. Like tell, tell us a little bit about it. Okay. So some of you may wonder what microneedling is and microneedling is a device. It's either a roller or a pen type of device that has multiple fine needles and the needles will penetrate the skin and they create these micro channels and these micro holes in the skin. And there's different needle lengths that are used. The smaller the needle length, um, the less pain, and you can have actually no pain at all. So like a 0.25 millimeter, 0.5 millimeter really does not hurt at all. It feels like a piece of Velcro on the skin. Um, or like if you've ever had a cat lick you, it feels like a cat's tongue. Um, it's, it doesn't hurt. It's just a weird, weird sensation. Um, now, some patients are going to be more sensitive, especially the older population that doesn't have as thick of skin generation will at this point. But as you increase your needle size, that's going to increase the need for anesthetics and for pain control. And usually above about a 0.5 or a one millimeter, those procedures are happening in the dermatologist's office. But it's a really good option for either or. And what's cool about microneedling, it was actually developed by a surgeon, a plastic surgeon that was trying to hide a patient's scars from plastic surgery. They had had facelifts and they had big scars on their face 
and the surgeon sent them to a tattoo artist and had color um, tattooed on the scar to try to blend it. Well, it looked terrible and the color faded in about a year, but they noticed that the scar was decreasing and that the skin was really nice and tight around this area that was treated. So this surgeon, this plastic surgeon actually developed the very first microneedling device, which was almost like a lint roller, a very small lint roller with needles all the way around. Um, and that's how it was developed um, and how it all started. But it's a really cool device to help increase the absorption of our medications down through the skin. And it also helps the body to make more collagen. So the um, stimulation or the creation of these holes will cause the body to go through the remodeling and the inflammation, all these cycles that are necessary. And in that process, it will end up creating more collagen resulting in firmer skin, hopefully less wrinkles, things like that. Um, what's great about this is this is not a one-time thing. That's great for the, the compounder. It's great for the practitioner because these patients are going to continue to come back. Um, and it's a continued revenue source for the compounder or for the practitioner. So it's kind of a, a neat way that the pharmacy and the dermatologist can work together um, to help better their patient's appearance. And so the kind of the, the there's two four here that in the office there's prescription items and then there's the take home prescription items. But is there a cosmetic revenue for people who don't necessarily want to see a practitioner that we could also um, yield out of these micro needling devices? Sure. Yeah. Um, so there's many things that you can use um, with this that are just available as a cosmetic, just over the counter without a prescription. So the patients can purchase a microneedling device, and then they're able to use that device at home along with cosmetic products that don't require a prescription and get some very good results as well. Now, the needle depth is not going to be as deep as would happen in an office, um, but it's definitely something that can be done at home without the need to go to an office, without the need for prescriptions, and they can just do that um, in their own home setting. You know, thanks, Renelle, for all that. You know, probably gives a lot of clarity to those that are wondering, you know, the benefits of microneedling and, and not truly understanding what's been happening more in the marketplace and demand from physicians as well. Um, maybe we can kind of bridge the gap and talk about some other alternative therapies to skin lightening. Cause I, I think that's also something that also falls near and dear to the heart of members of our clinical services team and, and probably more generated requests over the last few years. Yeah, sure. So um, in terms of skin lightening, this is probably one of the most common questions we get asked in consulting is, you know, what's the best skin lightening cream or, what actives can be used for skin lightening. And, and this is a very, very common request from dermatologists because I feel like compounders are the way for them to go and get customized ingredients, things that are not commercially available. So kind of the standard of treatment when we think of skin lightening is hydroquinone. Um, and hydroquinone is great for spot treatment for short-term use, but it really should not be used for more than three months at a time. So people kind of get stuck in that and say, well, what else can I do? And there's a lot of really good alternatives that we can do and make some really great combinations. So things like tretinoin, um, ascorbic acid, and then tranexamic acid. These are all things that can be utilized um, besides hydroquinone or in addition to hydroquinone to help with skin lightening. 
So we have a lot of tools in our toolbox, as us compounders like to say quite a bit. Uh, we have a lot of options in what we can do. Um, and then in addition to the active ingredients, PCCA members have huge advantages in terms of unique bases that we can use. So we do have a base. Um, it's a W06 is the name of it. And it's great because you can put hydroquinone in there. It's anhydrous. And this is a huge benefit for dermatologists. One of the big complaints we get with hydroquinone is one, they want for longer storage. They want beyond a 30 day beauty. And two, they want room temperature storage. Well, unfortunately, when you're dealing with regular cream bases that contain water, we really are stuck to a 30 day beyond use state with hydroquinone and we're stuck with refrigeration. And this base from PCCA W06 gets around both of those. It is a huge selling point to dermatologists to be able to say, I have something that I can put 180 days on my hydroquinone formulations and it's room temperature storage. So it's a great option and a huge advantage when we're dealing with the skin lightening um, active ingredients, specifically hydroquinone. Renell, that's a really great point. And you mentioned the, the context of the amount of requests that we get from our members. Because ultimately, someone like yourself, someone like Sebastian, your primary roles are truly helping out our members from a clinical point of view on a day-to-day -day basis. We Just last year, I, I want to just throw this out there, we, we managed 75,000 requests from members in North America as well as in Australia. So you know, thinking of the full breadth of requests that we get, you mentioned that questions around hydroquinone are probably the most common. Um, what are some of the issues or challenges that our clinical team has noticed? Because you mentioned the benefit of W06. You mentioned the fact that, you know, oxidation is reduced. And, and most importantly, when starting with the appropriate active pharmaceutical ingredient, um, an ingredient of high quality will also further support the best patient outcomes and the, the best, I guess you can say, final dosage form. So is there anything that you guys can share? And this, I guess, is the question for both of you. Anything that you guys can unpack in regards to hydroquinone and when we see either subpar API, when we're using alternative bases and things potentially can get kind of nasty. Yeah, definitely. Hydroquinone is one of those tricky chemicals. Um, you have to be really careful when you work with it um, because it's very particular. Um, it does not like some cream bases. So there's many times where I take a call that say, my hydroquinone cream formulation is separating. What's going on? And the first thing I do is say, what base are you using? Um, because there are bases that will separate. Hydroquinone's just not happy in there and it'll separate and become two phases. You have a liquid phase kind of sitting on the top. So I would be very, very careful when you're dealing with hydroquinone. I would follow the formulas, use bases that we know are okay with it and use very high API quality. Um, we know now after years and years of experience that just because it says USP doesn't mean it's the same from one company to another. Um, we deal very commonly with color changes that are happening quicker than should be. Um, crystallization problems, separation, even when the base is there, it's like, what's going on? And it comes down to your, your chemical quality is not good. There's some sort of contaminant. There's something in there. So hydroquinone is a chemical. You really want to purchase the best quality. You can use the best bases that you can 
for it that we know are going to work with it. Um, and just be really careful about the combinations that you're putting in there. I don't know if Sebastian has more to add. I'm sure he does. <laughs> I was going to say the worst case scenario for any compounder is to hand out a $65, $75 multi-ingredient cream and have it come back in three to five days and it's it's broken or it's oxidized or it's failed completely. And now the patient's looking at you being like, I just spent $75, remake it. And then now you're doing those investigations, but now you're also losing that relationship. Worse yet is if you never hear back from that patient because it failed and then they go back to the, the practitioner and the practitioner goes, yeah, don't, we're going to change, we're going to change tact. We're going to change pharmacies. We're going to change. And it, it's easily resolved by just making better choices at the beginning. So I a hundred percent agree with you, Renell. And I cannot tell you how many times I had other people's creams in my pharmacy saying, can you fix this? We're like, eh, we can't fix it, but we can make it better. And that, that was the key piece. And the patients were really happy to spend the money. It's their face. It's their face. And when they're looking at their face, they're like, yeah, I can spend a little bit or I can spend enough to make it work and, and do it right. So I, I'm just I'm just thinking about all those interactions I had and I'm like, oh, so bad. So well, and it's it's true too, especially now with everybody on Zoom, like, you know, people dress from the waist up and like their face is super important because it's on, you know, it's on camera all the time. <laughs> so Oh yeah, they take off their mask and you're like, oh, what's going on there? But yeah, a Zoom yeah. and people are people are are really Honestly, they're putting their best face forward. So there's a lot more emphasis on it. Interesting. Interesting. So, um, Renell, what, what else are you seeing? Like, I, like I'm thinking about all the bleaching aspects and the skin lightening, but I know that there's some other ones out there that people are, are, haven't necessarily heard about the same way that we're hearing about it because we're hearing kind of the odd ones. So what else are you seeing in the field of dermatology? That's interesting to you that you're, that you're excited about or getting excited about yeah, I think um, probably the other thing is may seem simple to people, but acne, um, because we see acne all the way from young teenage people all the way up to postmenopausal um, are getting acne. And now with the increased mask wearing, there is a lot more acne and people really don't know what to do. They've tried over the counter items. And this is where a compounder can really come in, evaluate, hey, what's worked for you? what hasn't worked for you. Let's combine different things. Let's use some things that are not available and let's get your skin really healthy. So kind of some of the things that I see um, work really well in acne patients. So I don't like to use antibiotics if I can get around it. Um, that's kind of a last resort for me. I feel like that's the standard go-to for a lot of physicians. And so I wanna be different and I wanna do something unique for them. Um, I find benzoyl peroxide is excellent for helping with acne. Most patients get some help with benzoyl peroxide, but maybe they've tried it and it wasn't in combination with anything else, or maybe it's been years since they've done it. And so I really do like to try to add benzoyl peroxide if that's something that I think will work for them. Um, tretinoin is awesome. I have a lot of people trying to combine benzoyl peroxide and tretinoin, which seems like a great idea, but tretinoin is very sensitive to oxidation and benzoyl peroxide is a very strong oxidizer. So those two don't go together. Um, it's kind of like oil and water. We, we can't put those together, but there's other things we can do in the postmenopausal or the menopausal range. I have a lot of patients with acne um, and, you know, they're already going through all these changes 
you know, physically, mentally, and now their face is breaking out. And it's just sometimes the last straw for them. And spirolactone can be excellent for these postmenopausal women. Um, so just being able to put that in a cream that they put on their face um, is a really good option for them. They get, they get, you know, clearing up of their acne. We can put it in a nice base. We have clarifying base that has an avocado extract. Love clarifying base. I use it every morning as my moisturizer. It's just a really great all over moisturization base. It's not going to be too oily and it holds these active ingredients really well. You know, earlier we were talking about hydroquinone being a tricky chemical. Benzyl peroxide is a tricky chemical. Um, and so benzyl peroxide does really well in clarifying base. It's not very problematic in there. We have tons of formulations with it in there. We know that it's stable and that it works. In addition to just those active ingredients, I think pharmacists can be such a great source for patients dealing with acne in terms of lifestyle modifications. Simple things like drinking more water makes a huge difference in your skin. Um, decreasing your stress, you know, in this day and age, stress is just so rampant that we can help them with stress modifications, you know, and then the one other trick I have up my sleeve for acne is just like a scrub, a salicylic acid scrub. The pharmacy can make this, um, it's just a really good exfoliating, um, option for patients. And I think it's often forgotten. So usually, you know, we do a cleanser, we do a good, um, salicylic acid scrub that they can just do in the shower. And then we have our compounded cream and I've had excellent results with that regimen. It's simple. It works for most patients and it does, um, a really great job at alleviating the acne. And if that regimen doesn't, there's a bunch of things that we can add and tweak and tailor it for our patients. But acne is a really great area. I think some dermatologists just kind of get stuck and patients don't want to take these oral medications. And there's so many things that we can do topically to help our patients um, get rid of the acne. Well, thank you, Renelle, for all that. It's such amazing content and information. And I know this is helping educate you know, hundreds and thousands of people. When, when thinking about other therapies, I know in prior podcasts, especially when it comes to our innovation, our base development, we, we've spoken about things like psoriasis and eczema. Um, one thing that probably we have not discussed is the topic of hair loss. And, and I know that's another emerging area of, of interest. Definitely a lot of the questions that our clinical team gets is, is also hair loss related. So what have you seen being uh, either alternative therapies or trends that do require the attention of, of most of our audience as well? Yeah, I think um, dealing with hair loss or alopecia um, is also a really great topic to talk to dermatologists about because there's not, there's not a lot of great options commercially available. I mean, basically commercially available, we have minoxidil. Um, and compounders can use minoxidil along with other active ingredients. So when we're talking about hair loss, we have a couple different categories. There's a lot of different types of hair loss. I think the most common that we see are um, alopecia areata. That's normally an immune mediated issue. That's the one where you'll see complete loss on the scalp or complete loss on the face, including like eyebrows, eyelashes. Um, or it can be even like the whole body, which is alopecia totalis. So that's an autoimmune component, which is treated a little differently 
than the standard male pattern or female pattern baldness. So looking at areata, um, because there is an immune component, we can look at naltrexone, um, decreasing systemic inflammation, helping the body deal with that. Naltrexone is a great option. If they have um, systemic hair loss, we can do oral naltrexone, low-dose naltrexone. Sebastian can probably talk all day about that uh, more than I can, so I'll leave it at that. But we can do topical naltrexone. Um, we can do topical naltrexone with minoxidil. So these are kind of unique um, things that we can compound that can help these patients. Also, there's sensitizing therapy. So sensitizing therapy is like squaric acid. That's something that historically has been used and actually does have some really great results. There's studies out there showing that we can do um, squaric acid in combination with anthralin for the resistant patients. So there's many options for these alopecia areata patients. But moving from that to male and female pattern baldness, where I think you're gonna see the majority of your hair loss patients. Um, and again, we need to look at hormone status. So that's always a piece that I'm putting in with this because you think about it, these patients that are having hair loss are older patients. So for men, I'm looking at what's your testosterone level, what's going on with that? How is your testosterone converting? And for women, I'm looking at their, their estrogen and progesterone and their, their, tes their testosterone too, um, in addition to cortisol. So I always like to preface that because we can help with hair loss, but we need to treat the cause of it as well. So when we're dealing with hair loss for men, um, kind of men and women, the standard is minoxidil, but what we add is a little different. So for men, minoxidil, finasteride, tretinoin, um, a steroid in there, very, very, very commonly done. We get some really good results with that. And for men, kind of going back to the beginning of this podcast, adding microneedling can be extremely beneficial. And um, if you're a member, you can call me. I can tell you all about how those studies have done that. But there's been some very successful studies looking at microneedling in combination with minoxidil therapy to increase hair growth in men with androgenic alopecia or male pattern baldness. For females, again, minoxidil is my mainstay, but me personally, I don't really go above 5% minoxidil for females. Um, I don't find that we get increased effectiveness and usually 5% minoxidil is a good base to work with, with females. I also do not add finasteride for females because um, the studies don't support its use in females. So I don't add that, but I will add tretinoin. I will add estradiol. I will add progesterone. Um, you can add melatonin topically. So there's a lot of different options that you can add. In addition, there are some interesting studies using minoxidil capsules in women, very low dose, uh, 0.25 milligram up to about a one or a 1.25 milligram every day, which some women might find that that works better. And those drinks aren't available commercially. So that's going to need to be compounded. So these are great options that are backed, you know, this, this, um, minoxidil capsule, there's data supporting this that you can take to the dermatologist and say, Hey, look at this option. Can we try this in this patient? This is things that are unique. They're innovative. And, um, a lot of your dermatologists are really going to be looking for different ways to be able to satisfy their patients. So while we're on this one, and you talked about a lot of actives, I'm going to bring it up and you're going to get really mad when I mention it. 
spironolactone topically with minoxidil. Oh, yes. Okay. So spironolactone is really great um, to use because the hair loss occurs when we have increased concentrations of DHT. And spironolactone is actually going to compete with DHT for that area. And what's also interesting is when you have higher levels of DHT on the scalp, it causes hair loss. When you have higher levels of DHT on the face, it causes hair growth. So this is very interesting. And we could talk about Hertzuism next if we want. Um, but spironolactone is great to use on the scalp. However, there is a really bad reaction that happens between minoxidil and spironolactone. How do we know this? Because our PCD lab is in there trying these formulations out before they go you know, live on our formulations database. And there is an extremely foul odor that occurs with the combination of minoxidil and spironolactone. And when I talk to people about this, they say, oh, well, I have a solution. Let's add a fragrance. Well, the fragrance, you, you can't cover the smell. It is awful. And so going back to what Sebastian had said earlier about dispensing something to your patient, you want this to be an elegant, pharmaceutically elegant prescription. And when you have somebody, something that someone has to apply on their scalp every single day that smells terrible, I don't think you're going to have good patient compliance. So what I would say to that is you have to separate minoxidil and spironolactone. Um, they're going to need to be two separate formulations so we don't get that foul odor in that reaction. And just to be clear, it's a sulfur bonding sort of dealing too. I think someone did the chemistry and it literally is releasing like a uh, rotten egg smell. That's yeah, the best way to describe it, but I don't even think that <laughs> that's does a it good justice. Way. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. It's, it's not something that you want your patients to have to deal with. <laughs> not, not walking around every day like, oh yeah, look at my full head of hair. I smell <laughs> like a, like terrible, uh, yeah, we'll leave it there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, actually talk about the hertuism because I, I was actually finding this really interesting because you did mention uh, estrogen in your minoxidil products. And I learned that one ages ago and I was just blown away because I thought it was a really good idea for females, but we don't use it in males. But now I'm going to kind of kick it back to you because you probably understand it way better than anyone else. Yeah. Um, estrogen, it's, it's just really neat. A lot of these patients, you know, are estrogen and progesterone deficient, which has an effect all over the body. We know that there are estrogen receptors all over the body. Um, Dr. Smith talks about extensively that estrogen, specifically estradiol has over 400 functions in the body. And one of those is regulation of hair growth. And so adding estradiol and progesterone in these formulations can really help get those hormones directly where they need to be and help, um, increase the hair growth for these patients. I was going to say, I learned from a practitioner ages ago, that just a little pitch of, uh, estrogen will prevent that DHT hair growth on the face in females, which is kind of a, like, it's a big deal if you're putting minoxidil on them and, and you're getting good hair growth. You don't want to have this sort of male hair growth too. So that was, a, that was their trick and it seemed to work. So, Yeah, and that, that's a great segue into talking about hair growth on the face for females, um, Hertzuism. There's a lot of great things we can do. One of those is estrogen, specifically estriol. Um, normally we see estriol at a 0.05% and it will actually help, um, inhibit the hair growth on these patients. So the patients that are having like, you know, hair growth on their upper lip or on their chin or their cheeks, 
that's something that can be added in addition to some other active ingredients. So we have things like uh, metformin. Metformin is kind of newer to the idea of treating Hertzuism. Um, it helps decrease the circulating insulin levels. So in turn, you're gonna decrease the concentration of these free androgens that are floating around. And remember, higher levels of androgens convert to DHT and that's gonna cause hair growth on the face, hair loss on the scalp. So metformin's a really good option. Um, also progesterone and spirolactone. These are both anti-androgens. So you can add those in to this metformin combination. Um, we see azelaic acid being used um, as well and finasteride too. So there's a lot of things that you can do for Hertzuism to help these patients. And you know, I'm gonna bring it all back to hormones because a lot of these patients um, are PCOS patients. And so if we can help them alleviate um, these symptoms by addressing the cause, I think that's very important as well. Obviously we want to decrease the hair growth as soon as possible because it can be really debilitating psychologically for them, but addressing the cause so that they feel better emotionally as well would be excellent. So I always look at the hormone status of these patients too, but Hertzuism is something that there's not a lot available commercially. So this is a huge opportunity for compounders to be able to help with this. Yeah, well done, Renell, too, because bringing it back to hormones is probably so important. And I think um, you did a great job in that, knowing that these are, are two big passions of yours. You know, I think just to kind of recap, because there's always a, a marketing or a sales angle. And then once again, the, the triad and the importance of how to communicate with dermatologists specifically. So, you know, to, to kind of recap and review a lot of the information you shared, like I said, it always boils down to how to get the word across to these practitioners in terms of what, what the alternative therapies are, what are the patient outcomes looking like, and, and how do you truly try to convince a dermatologist that you know, there are plenty of benefits, plenty of alternatives relating to personalized medication. Is, is there a golden answer to all that? Or you know, how would you have approached a dermatologist and made this kind of the simplest and easiest process, but also make it effective? Okay. Um, so I think a couple things to remember is don't overwhelm them with everything that you can do. So don't go in there and talk about you know, skin lightening and eczema and psoriasis and rosacea and acne and say, hey, I'm your, I could do everything for you because it's overwhelming. So I would say this is a, a long-term relationship and you pick one disease state and you go in with data, especially on the first couple of times you go in with literature, you go in with studies and say, look, this study, for example, there's a study you looking at tranexamic acid skin lightening. So you can take this study into them and show, look at this study. This is a great opportunity. I can make this formula. Here's the base I would put it in. Give them a sample. Dermatologists especially are about feel and they want to touch and they want to see what things are like. So go in very prepared with one area. Don't overwhelm it. Have data to support it and then bring them a sample so they can touch and feel and know what it's going to be like um, and plan on making return visits. This was hard for me because I don't, you know, I expect to go in and say, 
here it is. And they say, this is great. And we want to bring everybody to you right away, but they need, you know, they need consistency. So be prepared to go back multiple times. I think that's probably the best advice that you could have left with everybody too. And, and not trying to kind of dump the kitchen sink on them and say, you're a jack of all trades. You can do absolutely everything uh, could definitely overwhelm a physician. And I think that's just great feedback. Um, anything else that you would love to share right now? Cause I know, our audience probably got a lot out of this episode. Is there anything that really stands out to you uh, that you would love to leave behind to all of our listeners? Um, yes, I would say treat each patient uniquely. You, you can have ideas on formulas that you use for skin lightening and formulas that you use for acne, but don't ever forget to talk to your patient about what they've tried in the past, what has worked for them, and what has failed them because that extra five minutes that you spend with them can mean the difference between success and failure for you as a compounder. And it's so important to make sure that you are treating your patient as an individual and knowing what their past history is. That's really important. The other piece of advice I would say is buy the right chemicals and the right bases just upfront. Don't waste your time with cheap alternatives or copycat alternatives that aren't going to be, you know, what you need them to be, because you're going to end up with problems and that's going to look really bad on you. You don't want a patient coming back after three days. You don't want a patient taking their prescription into the doctor and saying, this didn't work. You know, what else can we do? And so you want to try to get around that factor from the beginning and not even have to defend yourself with that. Yeah, that was, and that was the reason why I was asking you guys about the hydroquinone, because I know it's probably the primary example that probably comes to mind for most, um, not only on our side of things, but obviously on yours within the clinical world. So, you know, thanks for unwrapping that. Thanks for discussing the importance of quality and, and also that dovetails into the PCCA standard in terms of how we acquire APIs, who we acquire them from, and obviously the integration within bases and and what that outcome will look like, ensuring that patients um, get the best suitable outcomes and are dealing with the best dosage forms. So you couldn't have said it better in any other way. Renell, thank thank you. you so much. That was awesome. Thanks guys. It was fun to be with you as always. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure. I know you'll probably be back at some point to discuss a, yet another passion. But Renal, just thank you for being part of the podcast. Thank you for this episode. And as always, thanks to all of our listeners out there who just tuned in. Um, as always, to follow us along on social media, please find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you do not subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, please hit the subscribe button so you do not miss an episode. Until next time, this is Mike Delisio, and I'll talk to you soon.